Our main passage this morning is in the Gospel of John. I invite you to turn there to John chapter 7. A little bit later, we will look at a passage in Ezekiel. So if you're not familiar, you may also want to figure out where that is in your Bible. John chapter 7, our primary text this morning, is an account from the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. At a time when he went up to Jerusalem to celebrate an annual festival of the Jews called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or in more contemporary words, the Feast of Tents. And it was commemorated time in Israel's history when God's people were brought out of Egypt and then they travel through the wilderness and then they're brought to Canaan and going back into the tents each year, they'd set up these kind of booths outside of their homes, would be a reminder to them to be grateful for the Lord having brought them from the place that was temporary into a place of permanent dwelling. And we're going to have something like that too. Paul says when we go from this body that is wearing away like a tent and receive our everlasting form in the resurrection. And so Jesus is going up to celebrate this feast in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, like Phoenix, is in an arid location. Kids, that means it doesn't rain there very much. And they also don't have any significant rivers that flow near to Jerusalem. What that means is that the inhabitants of that land were intensely aware of their dependence upon natural springs to give them the water that they needed. All the water that they needed for drinking, for washing, for industry, all of it was coming from springs, not from rivers or from rain. Now, the primary spring then, and even to this very day in Jerusalem, is a spring called Gihon. And that water, which comes up from the spring, is then channeled down into reservoirs and into pools. And one of the most famous of those pools is a pool called Siloam. Every year, historians tell us, in fact, there are coins that commemorate this, the Jews would gather in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and one of the things they would do, historians record, that they would gather near the Pool of Siloam to watch a whole train of priests who would fill water jars up and then process up to the temple. They'd go up to that temple, and they'd pour the water out near the altar. Now, you think what's going on? The sacrifice of hundreds and thousands of animals for these huge populations of Jews coming into the city for the festival. What happens when you sacrifice lots and lots of animals? A whole lot of blood. It looks like a major butchery up on the Temple Mount. And so these priests are bringing jar after jar after jar after jar. And surely people, whether they thought about it or not, they were grateful. The spring kept flowing. This is our water, and we need this. And they would also, at that time, read passages of Scripture aloud, at least from the time of Nehemiah. And you can find something similar to this in Nehemiah chapter 8, where the priests have the people gathered for a festival, and they read selected portions of Scripture. Traditionally, one of the passages that was read was Zechariah 14, which says, on that day, listen carefully, because it's going to tie into what we're about to hear Jesus say. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. 
It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. A prophecy, and the people wonder, what exactly shall that mean? Will that be literal? Or is it a spiritual fulfillment? And it's with that background then that Jesus lifts up his voice and says what we find in verse 37 and following. Look with me to the word of God. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The Lord bless us as we consider it. Let's ask him even now. Father in heaven, you have broken into time and space. In the incarnation of your son, you have revealed to us most perfectly your will and the hope of salvation. We ask that you would enlighten us this morning by your Holy Spirit to understand and to respond to these words that he declared. Help us, Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It should go without saying, no organism can live without water. There isn't one organism that can live without water. And humans in particular need it very frequently. There are other kinds of organisms that can go a long time, maybe even years, without receiving a fresh supply of water. Humans have about three to four days. What is Jesus asserting in this passage, and what does the Bible assert about the human condition? God, through Christ, is telling you that human beings, and you included, have a need which is comparable to your need for water. And it can only be satisfied in coming to Jesus Christ. We're going to see this morning that Jesus Christ promises that as you come to him, you not only receive something that can satisfy your deepest need, but the Lord promises through you to become a conduit of his grace to the world as well. And so we come to this passage, and we should, with a sense of expectation. Lord, how do you provide for me, and how do you provide for others through me? Now, as we consider this together, we're going to look at the text under three main divisions. First, we're going to look at the problem. Jesus identifies a problem that touches everyone. Then secondly, we are going to look at the promise that he gives. What exactly is it? Who is it for? How do you receive it? And then third, we're going to look at what is the plan with respect to others, not just yourself. The promise directly affects you, but it goes beyond that. Now, again, I'll bring each of those up as we come to them, but let's start with this issue of the problem. Jesus sees a problem here in verse 37 that he compares to thirst. Think about thirst. Thirst is not a choice. No one sits down and decides to be thirsty. Thirst is different than having a taste for things, right? There are people who will drink soda all day, and you cannot get them to drink water, even if they haven't had it in four days. These are distinct. A taste is not the same as thirst. Thirst is an involuntary appetite. And when you're healthy, it signifies a need, a lack that needs to be met. 
The fact that Jesus compares this to thirst for water and not, for instance, to wine indicates that it's something that goes to our very survival. It's something that goes to our ability to be fruitful. It's not merely preference. We're not talking about something that just certain people in the world have a preference for maybe a spiritual life and Jesus can help you with that, but I don't need that. This is a need universal to human beings. Now, what is that need? It is explicitly stated in verse 39. Now, this Jesus said about the spirit and the little extra detail he puts in there, which had not been poured out, is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. You see very clearly, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Talking about the second person of the divine trinity. Very God of very God. An equal participant in creation and in providence and redemption. Here Jesus is saying that you have a need for the Holy Spirit to be in you like you have a need for water to be in you. Not just out there, but in you. Now, I acknowledge not everybody feels that. Even believers at different times may more or less feel their need to have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But whether or not you feel it doesn't change the fact that you need it. Again, you may not feel thirsty, but you can still die of dehydration. We have this need, and why do we have it? Simple answer is because you're not a plant. A plant can get by with water and, of course, the other nutrients that come from the ground and the sun in order to produce the kind of fruit that is natural to it, physical fruit. Contrary to what some people have foolishly come to believe in suppression of their own conscience and what is obvious in nature, we are more than physical things. We have mind. We are moral. We embody a reality that is able to commune with God and spirit, which is designed to produce things that transcend physicality. Beauty is not just an opinion, man. It's real. Our ability to perceive moral truth, not just tangible physical truth, is real. When the Bible describes the kind of fruits that we were created to bring forth, you can find a list of them, for instance, in Galatians 5. Again, this is contrasting mere plants with what a person is. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. As people produce these things, they are embodying, they are imaging the divine character. And we are created in that way to do more than just be biological automatons, machines in the world, but conscious, personal beings who participate in divine life. Now, you could say, well, I do some of those. I show patience, and I don't have the Holy Spirit. I show patience maybe just with a little bit of the Spirit. But the Lord created us to dwell in the presence of a holy God. And when we bring ourselves not to the, the darkness that is comparing ourselves with other people, but comparing ourselves with the holiness of God who sets the standard, who is himself, the standard of righteousness that is burned into our consciousness, our sense of right and wrong, then we have to reckon with what scripture says. 
in mankind's fall into sin, we succeeded in spilling every single ounce of the original pure righteousness and communion that God had poured into us. There is no part of you that you can find which is pure, truly pure, your best intentions polluted. And if you think, well, I can't find any problem, I'm going to go with Scripture. Let God be true and every man a liar. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Ephesians puts this very starkly. When Paul is speaking to believers, he says, You were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were once separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. That is stark, but that's the description of human beings apart from the work of the Holy Spirit that the Bible gives. Able to do relative good in the world, but not able to do anything that passes muster when brought before God's judgment. Jesus puts it by way of analogy when he says in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Christ communicates, as it were, the moisture to you. But outside of that union with Jesus Christ wrought by the Holy Spirit, you can't bear anything pleasing to the Lord. And not only that, but you will never experience the kind of satisfaction that God created human beings for. Ecclesiastes puts it in this way. God has put eternity in our hearts. The things of this world are good, but they're just faint reflections of the infinite fullness that is God. And so this world can't satisfy. That's why there's a thirst. Why there must be this thirst. But God can satisfy it in Jesus Christ. Hear what it says in Psalm 63. Psalm 63, 1. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and a parched land where there is no water. The psalmist is looking out on the world and he's saying, outside of you, Lord, there is nothing that will ever give me full lasting satisfaction and peace. And if you try to extract it from a person, you will destroy them and disappoint yourself. No person can be for you all that you want them and yearn for them to be. And God can be that for you because he can change your desires and bring them into accord with what you're actually supposed to be. So this is the problem that Jesus identifies, that we are spiritually dry, we are spiritually barren, we are spiritually unable to bring ourselves to salvation, to faith, to godliness, apart from this work of the Spirit. Now then, what is the solution? Jesus gives us a promise. And this brings us to the second main division. The promise that Jesus gives is stated plainly in verse 37. Look there with me. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. First, notice that there are conditions. There is not a universal promise of salvation to the world. God will not be unjust. He will give justice to those who desire to live and die 
according to their own righteousness. But the conditions here are laid out in the phrase, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. First, if anyone thirsts, before you're willing to come, just practically, you have to feel your need of it. And this thirsting for the Lord, it has been reflected in many of the names that we associate with the Christian faith throughout the years. Maybe you know some of these people and their history. Somebody like Augustine, who spent 10 years seeking satisfaction in Manichaeanism. Or Luther, with his about 10 years, flogging himself with a whip as a monk, trying to find some sense of peace with God. History is full of examples of people who felt this thirst and found it answered in Christ. But you will not find people who come to Christ meaningfully who did not pass through some sense of, I need this. Now, that doesn't mean they never, or that they always remember it. Sometimes it's when they're young. And like a child, can't drink as much as an adult. The child may not have the same depth at that time. They just know they are thirsty. and They want Jesus and what he has to give. There must be this thirst. Second, we have to come to Jesus and drink. What does that actually mean? What does it mean to come to Jesus and to drink from him? One theologian explained it this way, I think, very clearly. Listen carefully, because this is what your salvation depends upon. We come to Christ when we embrace him as he is held out to us in the gospel. Full of power, wisdom, righteousness, purity, life, and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When we embrace him as he's held out to us in the gospel. When you take him to yourself and you say, as it were, you shall be what I receive for my thirst. You are what I need to bring into me through, as our confession puts it, faith, which is the mouth of the soul. And to whom does Jesus extend this promise? You'll notice in verse 37 and verse 38, it says, all those who are sufficiently good and who begin their life with a real commitment to being decent, and then after they come to faith, they live a pretty decent life, they stand up. It doesn't say that. Then why do so many professing Christians think that's Christianity? I would submit to you the majority of professing Christians in the world think that they go to heaven, that they will have these waters of life because they were decent, that they upheld their end of the bargain. Now, I'm not saying that we don't seek to live a godly life, but we do so as those who have received the Spirit freely by grace. And Jesus says in verse 37 and 38, if anyone whoever believes and there will be a great many decent people who go to hell and then there will be those that you thought I really wasn't confident about that person's salvation but they had believed upon Christ and they struggled with sins perhaps for reasons that you never had to deal with let us judge by the standard we wish to be judged by but here, anyone who desires is beckoned to come. If anyone thirsts, if anyone believes. And what does Christ promise to them? Verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not stagnant, not salty. Here, this word living was often used in ancient culture 
for fresh flowing water. But of course it has a spiritual connotation too. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And why does it come as plural rivers? I can't tell you that I'm certain, but I have a guess, and it's consistent with the majority of commentators. There is one Holy Spirit, but sometimes the Bible represents the Holy Spirit in unified pluralities, or having one source, but kind of several different ways of representing that power. Let me give you some examples. You have the menorah. You have the menorah, which is one candlestick, but several different flames. In our call to worship this morning, the seven spirits were before the throne of God. There's one Holy Spirit. And this has to do with the plenitude, the fullness of the various ways that the Holy Spirit manifests his gifts and graces through his people. And so what's being promised here is not just that you're going to get a small thimbleful to parch your thirst. That the Holy Spirit will be given to the believer in this life and the next sufficient to meet the needs of life even to abound beyond them. More than just your thirst, but the way of living. John 4, verse 14, Jesus says, John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Now, I don't think we should take that in the sense that you don't have some sense of desire or need in the Christian life that it just evaporates. But comparatively, imagine... For the rest of your life, you always have a bottle of water nearby. You're never going to thirst again. It's always there. You have what you need. You need to drink deeply. The Christians do continue to drink from the well of life. But Jesus says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the promise then is that everyone who comes looking away from themselves, taking Jesus up on the offer, he's like that guy just offering a free bottle of water, Everyone who takes him up on the promise shall have everlasting life through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise as it relates to you directly. And I put it to you plainly. Have you received that? Is there indication of that in your life? Or are you still thirsting for a sense of meaning, for a sense of assurance that you are forgiven? Are you thirsting for a sense of communion that you've never experienced with God and with his church? Come to Christ. It's not complicated. It's impossible apart from the Spirit, but he says come. However, it also relates to others beyond ourselves. And this brings us to our third, our final division. Also focusing on verse 38. What is God's plan for the indwelling Spirit? Is it simply for you? And I know we know the answer is no. But let's reinforce that here. Let's remember it as we go into this coming week, as we go into this coming year. What is the plan? Verse 38, Jesus says, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The preposition out is suggestive. It suggests that it's not simply that this Water, so to speak, circulates within, kind of like a washing machine. Something's gone wrong if the water's coming out into the house. If you have the water flowing out, you'd have a problem if out of your washing machine we're going rivers of water. It's possible that Jesus is only looking at interior. I don't think so, however. 
in light of the broader narrative of Scripture. When he says, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water, I believe his purpose is to say that because of the Holy Spirit whom Christ gives, grace will go into the world. And I put that before you as a promise, not as a command. And to receive it with joy as a promise, not simply as another duty. Oh, I've got to get the Holy Spirit out of me into the world. Oh, I haven't been doing it enough. That's not how springs work. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that we find this imagery of rivers flowing out into the world abundantly? Maybe one that comes to mind is in Genesis, at creation, you have Eden. God forms a garden distinct from the rest of the world, meant to represent his holiest presence. And from there comes one river, and then that river splits into four, and it says it waters the whole world. And that's imagery of God being the source of life for the whole world. Man sins, everything goes wrong, there's a flood, it's wrecked. But then we encounter a beautiful passage in Ezekiel, and I invite you to turn there. I would like you to see this, Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel is writing about 650 years before Jesus. Within, you maybe heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, hot topic among archaeologists. We have major portions of the book of Ezekiel that predate the New Testament. We're talking fragments of these documents that are dated to at least 200 years before Jesus, and it would have been written many hundreds and hundreds of years before even that. So we're dealing with a book of prophecy, looking ahead to things, and in the 40s of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is receiving this long sequence. Remember, the chapter numbers are not original. He's receiving this long sequence of visions related to a temple that is to come. The Jews had their temple. It was going to get destroyed with the Babylonians. And he's having a vision of another temple that will come to be. That raises the question, is, is that the one that Herod built just before the time of Christ? Did that fulfill what we read in Ezekiel? Well, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 47. This is all in a vision. Then the angel brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. Remember, even Genesis imagery here, this is the direction to which the people were sent when they sinned and they couldn't get back in. Now there's water flowing out. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. Behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Now this is not unimaginable for him. Remember what I mentioned earlier, that a lot of water would be poured out at the temple, and there had to be a means to siphon that water away, to give runoff. And so it'd be typical that as sacrifice is going on, there'd be water flowing out. But then he says in verse 3, going eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Okay, so now he's, say, a half mile away from the temple. This is a lot of water. Ankle deep, 
over that distance, when we already remember that the temple is always pictured as situated atop a high hill, and the water is ankle deep, this is a lot of water in the vision. And he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and now it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. So it's taking a dead body of water and it's so inundating it that it becomes fresh water, turning the dead sea into a living sea. And then he says, And wherever the river goes, verse 9, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand by the sea. And it goes on to speak of the leaves no longer withering, but bearing fruit in all seasons. What is this speaking of? Centuries and centuries before the coming of Christ. In John chapter 2, Jesus stood up and he announced to those who had given ear to listen, I am the temple. I am the temple. And Peter tells us that we are like living stones being joined to Christ. And the imagery here, as all of the Old Testament does, uses imagery kinds of pictures that would be familiar to the Old Covenant people, but it's describing New Covenant realities. And here what's being pictured is that with Christ coming and ascending forth of the Holy Spirit, with Christ having purchased for us salvation, having brought us out from under the Old Covenant, having secured for us an everlasting salvation on the basis of his sacrifice, he's taking the Spirit and, as it were, bringing the blood to the whole world and bringing to the whole world life that transforms those who are dead. And he says it's going to go to the east and to the west until the Lord is king over all. Water you can swim in. No shortage. This state knows about a shortage of water. But when you think about what the church is in this state, there should be no shortage. It's a promise, not simply a command. And it's being fulfilled. Even in your life already, there is no person who has genuinely come to Christ that the Holy Spirit has not already produced fruit that was a blessing to others. Don't credit yourself. I'm sure you don't if you're in Christ. That was the Holy Spirit. And he flows through you and he doesn't run dry. And this desire of God to bring the gospel to all the nations, think how that is being fulfilled. Christianity, one of the greatest and most compelling arguments concerning Christianity, one of the great confirmation of Christianity is how it's different than every other religion. Yes, imposters, wolves have taken Christianity in many ways, twisted and perverted it, and brought evil to many places. 
But think at the same time, the only reason there's any success, any staying power in the faith, is because the gospel has gone into all nations, and unlike some other religions, it did not come to those places and say, you have to dress in exactly this way, adopt our exact culture, use our language, use our diet. Christianity in its core is for all the world to come into a relationship with the Lord and back into what it means not only to love him freely on the basis of having been loved, but to love our neighbors graciously. And out of the abundance of generosity shown to you in Christ, to overflow in generosity towards others. When you try to live out of yourself, you will be at a low ebb of grace. But when you look to Christ, and plead with him, fill me with the Spirit. He cannot go back on his word. All who knock on that door get an answer. And so this is a promise given to us for the outpouring of the Spirit. That's why in verse 39 of our chapter, John chapter 7, you'll see, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here, John assumes you know some theology. He doesn't mean no one had ever received some work of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit in power upon the generality of the church, not just prophets and priests and kings, but this immense outpouring upon the people of God to bring about the mission in all parts of the world. That has come. And so I implore you, brothers and sisters, in the first place, Do you sense this desperate need that you have? First, even to be saved through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have that thirst, get on your knees and acknowledge it. You're in danger. You'll die whether or not you feel your thirst. But if you have looked to Jesus Christ, then I implore you, plead with him. Flow out of my life increasingly. And I do not promise that you'll be aware of it because the Lord loves us enough that often it's as if he shields our eyes from seeing the good things he's actually working through us. And he allows us to be very mindful of our cracks and our faults. Paul says that it's like we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I think they're cracked and chipped and the water's always flowing out. And so that you know the glory is of God and not of yourself. I am not... Hear me rightly, I'm not saying that revival looks like everybody seeming like some prophet in the streets. Revival would be better stated as a renewal among the people of God where they come to be so gripped by the promises that are in Jesus Christ that they begin to live like Jesus Christ in the fullness of generosity, compassion, integrity, honesty, to bear the fruits of the Spirit. And if you say, I don't have very much of that, you will not find it in yourself. Feel weak in yourself, but don't feel like there's on the bottom of you just this sealed area of the pipe. The Holy Spirit flows. If you're empty, Lord, fill me. And then I want to exhort you. There are going to be times, of course, where the enemy whether that be the world, the flesh, or the very real devil, wants you to feel God's side is losing. It's like the water gets poured out and just dries up. It evaporates right away when it hits the ground. That is not true. 
the Lord has not lost one of his people. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Hear what John sees in this final chapter of the Bible, final vision. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There are a lot of ways to interpret Revelation. I'm going to submit to you that your interpretation should not be without the recognition we are the city of God. I don't know what it will look like, but I am persuaded that passage very clearly is telling us in visionary form God's church in the end has spread the water that comes from the Lamb to all the nations for their healing. Don't lose heart. God doesn't fail, but seek by his help to be a conduit of that grace to others. Let's ask him even now for that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the precious revelation given to us in the scriptures. We thank you for Ezekiel, that by your grace he was willing to suffer such a horrid life to preserve your truth as a prophet. Thank you for Jesus, willing to speak hard things and to endure the crucifixion and the hate of the crowd to bring to us these words. We thank you for the hope of salvation given to us in your Son. And we ask that by your spirit, you would renew us. Take us, pick us up off the ground. However withered we are, however dry we are, you are sufficient to revive. Fill us, Lord, for Jesus' glory. He is worthy. Amen.